Hello everyone, welcome back to Murder Alphabet Soup. I'm your host, Kira. I hope everybody out there had a good Memorial Day weekend. I spent mine in a literal closet talking about murder. And of course, if you serve or have served, thank you for everything that you do. Today, B is for barbecue, and we are going to be talking about none other than the barbecue murders. If you aren't familiar with this case, buckle the hell up, because it is quite a ride. And we are going back to the 70s for the story of Marlene Olive and the events leading to her parents' deaths. After that, stick around because I have another more recent, shorter case for you. Uh, the murder of Holge of Urgens. I hope I'm saying that right. It's Norwegian. I'm probably not. So I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's get into it, shall we? So this story begins with Marlene Louise, born on January 15th, 1959, to an unmarried mother, and they put her up for adoption, and as a newborn, she was adopted by James, also known as Jim, and Naomi Olive. They were a middle-aged couple, and this was their first child, and up until the age of about 14, uh, Marlene and her family lived in Guayaquil, Ecuador, where Jim was an um, executive in marketing for Tinoco and Gulf Oil. Jim and Marlene were actually pretty close in their relationship, Naomi and Marlene not so much. Uh, Naomi reportedly was dealing with alcoholism, mental illness, she was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, and this didn't exactly help the relationship between her and her adoptive daughter. When Marlene was 14, Jim moved the family back to the U.S. and they settled in San Rafael, California after he had lost his job in Ecuador. Jim started his own business as a small business consultant, and he spent a lot of time trying to make this business a success and get it off the ground, and as a result of that, he ended up spending less and less time with Marlene. Marlene was finding it pretty hard to adjust to life as a teen in North California after she, she had been living a pretty sheltered life in Ecuador, and it was, I mean, as you can imagine, pretty different, and I... I can imagine there was quite a culture shock there. She wasn't spending as much time with her dad. Things weren't getting any better with her mom. And Naomi would reportedly call her a whore all the time. They would continue to argue, and these eventually turned into actually physically violent fights. Marlene at one point developed a stomach ulcer, which she was prescribed medication for. And this eventually turned into her using these pills along with other drugs uh, recreationally. She was hanging out with a, a crowd of teenagers that were also drug users. Her interests were also turning towards witchcraft, glam rock, which, hey, nothing wrong with glam rock, and sex work. Her relationship with her dad wasn't exactly getting any better he would often take Naomi's side when there were big arguments, and Marlene actually suspected him of contacting police about some of the friends that she was hanging out with and using drugs. Um, I'm guessing in an attempt to distance her from those friends, and Marlene did not like that. 
because of this, Marlene started to rebel more. She would shoplift. She stole their credit card. She would run away from home. She had several friends that she had asked to kill her parents and asked them for advice or help to do it herself. And they didn't really take this seriously. They just kind of saw this as her being an angry teen. She did once actually attempt to poison Naomi by mixing a bunch of different medications in large doses all together and mixing it in with her food. But this, of course, was it was so much that it made the food really bitter and Naomi wouldn't eat it or at least enough of it to actually do anything. Marlene would also just have these random items, these gifts that her boyfriend had, would actually give to her after you know, burglaries he committed, just stuff that he had stolen. And this boyfriend was Chuck Riley. Chuck Riley was born in 1955 in Marin County, California to Oscar and Joanne Riley. He was obese from a pretty young age. At the age 15, he weighed about 300 pounds. He dropped out of high school his senior year. He worked a series of jobs, including paperboy, pizza delivery, and bartending, as well as dealing drugs on the side. It was noted that he was also pretty skilled with guns and owned he owned several of them. And at the age of 19, he met Marlene, who was 15 at the time, while dealing drugs at her high school. He had a crush on her, he started pursuing her, talking to her, and eventually they began dating. Marlene was his first girlfriend and she was actually pretty controlling. He would give her anything she wanted, free drugs, rides, gifts, and he would help her carry out any criminal acts or sexual fantasies that she wanted to carry out. She would threaten to break up with him if he didn't do exactly what she wanted, and she actually claimed that she had magical powers that gave her control over him. And Chuck bought into this, or he was at least really determined to try to keep her happy and keep this relationship going. When she did break up with him briefly a couple of times, he had actually uh, attempted suicide. As Marlene was known to do, she started asking Chuck with help with killing her mom or suggesting that he should just kill her parents for her. And again, like her other friends, I think he didn't think she was serious or, you know, was just having a moment of rage and never really. So Marlene and Chuck go on this long shoplifting spree. They stole about $6,000 in merchandise and they would steal stuff like women's clothing and accessories, just random items from stores. They were caught in the act on March of 1975 and arrested. This was three months before the murders would take place. This was Chuck's first arrest. In May, he was arrested again for possession of a sawed-off shotgun and marijuana. Marlene's parents were definitely getting fed up with all of this, and they threatened to send Marlene to juvie. They talked about sending her away for school and told her that she couldn't see Chuck anymore. And they had also had this written into part of a court order that they weren't they weren't allowed to talk to each other or see each other. So Saturday, June 21st rolls around and Marlene has another fight with Naomi. She calls Chuck and says, quote, get your gun. We've got to kill this bitch today, end quote. 
she made a plan to go somewhere with her dad, leaving her mom home alone, and she left a door unlocked so that Chuck could get access to the house. Chuck enters the house with a loaded .22 caliber revolver, and according to statements he made later, he also had a head full of acid. He finds Naomi asleep in a bedroom, and he then proceeds to beat her, especially in the head, with a hammer, and then stabs and suffocates her. While Chuck is still in the house, Jim comes back. Jim enters the home and he sees the state that his wife is in. He then picks up a knife and starts coming at Chuck shouting, I'm gonna kill you. This is when Chuck draws his gun and shoots Jim four times, killing him instantly. I couldn't quite pinpoint where exactly Marlene was when uh, Jim's death takes place. I imagine she was either outside the house in the car or in the house somewhere. I couldn't figure it out, but I know that she was close by because after this happens, the couple attempts to hide the bodies by wrapping them in sheets and taking them out to a wooded area called China Camp. It was nearby the house, probably about 20 minutes away. They put the bodies into this barbecue pit with some logs and cover it in gasoline and attempt to burn the bodies. They both actually leave while the bodies are still burning, and a little bit later a fireman arrives to put out this unattended fire, and at first he actually mistakes these bodies for a deer carcass. Later, Chuck and Marlene return with some additional evidence that they want to add to the pit, so they throw it in and they burn everything again. Then, with the help of a friend, they start cleaning up the room in the house. They're trying to get blood out of carpets. They're scrubbing it out of the walls, the furniture. It, it's everywhere. They tell this friend that's helping them, along with several other of their friends, about how they killed Marlene's parents, with Chuck actually carrying out the physical part of it. And Chuck reportedly said, We had to do it. They wouldn't let me see her. After this, the couple is living in the Olive's house for a few days, the same house they killed her parents in. They use the cash, checks, and cards that they took from her parents' bodies. And Marlene and Chuck just start, you know, living their best life. They're going out to eat, they're going shopping, they went to a Yes concert, and they're just, you know, doing whatever they want to do. Their plan is allegedly to wait until Jim and Naomi are declared dead and then collect their life insurance and move to Ecuador. A few days later, Jim's business partner is getting really worried. He hasn't heard from Jim, he's not showing up to work, so he contacts the police. The police show up at the Olive's house and they talk to Marlene, and she has a variety of stories. So while she's in questioning, she gives the cops multiple false alibis for herself and Chuck, and has all of these stories for what might have happened to her parents. Everything from one of them killing the other one and taking off with the body, saying that they were both killed by Hell's Angels. There's just a myriad of stories. And I think she even actually tells the truth at one point, and they don't know what to believe because she's given them so many different stories. But things definitely aren't adding up. And while they're at the house, police also notice that there's this one room that's been cleaned really, really well, and really, really recently, while the rest of the house is pretty much in disarray. The friend who had helped them clean the room actually 
told the police about the blood that he had seen and about Marlene and Chuck talking about killing her parents and burning the bodies. And I believe that he mentions this area called China Camp. And so the police search the area and they come across the barbecue pit. It's determined by police that there are, in fact, burnt fragments of human remains, and they arrest the couple. After the arrests, Chuck gives a confession, saying that Marlene had been planning to kill her parents for a while, and that he had beaten, stabbed, and suffocated Naomi before shooting Jim, and that Marlene had basically made him do it. Marlene, on the other hand, she claims that Chuck had killed them of his own free will on his own accord and after killing them had held her hostage and forced her to take drugs. In Chuck's trial, he was 20 years old at the time of the murders and based on his initial confession, he was charged with two counts of first-degree murder and was facing the death penalty. Defense attorneys then bring in a hypnotist, and this is basically to prove how easily influenced he could be, especially by someone as manipulative as Marlene. So during the hypnosis, Chuck recants the part of his statement about beating Naomi with a hammer, and instead says that when he initially found Naomi, she was laying in bed with the hammer embedded in her skull and blood everywhere. He was basically saying that Marlene had beaten her with the hammer before leaving the house, and by stabbing and suffocating her, he was basically taking her out of her misery. He said that he had initially confessed to the hammer portion of the murders because he wanted to protect Marlene, and he also says that he had shot Jim out of self-defense and fear after he was threatening that he was going to kill him. The jury wasn't really buying this, and they ended up convicting him on both of those first-degree murder counts, and on January 26th of 1976, Chuck was sentenced to death. It's also thought that Chuck was the one using the hammer, because Marlene, when she went out, she wouldn't have had time to change her clothes. There wasn't any blood on her, and I mean, her dad was in the house, so I would think that maybe she would be, you know paranoid that he would hear something or find out. Again, I don't know. I'm assuming Marlene wasn't exactly in the most stable state of mind, but that's just my thoughts. There's also an argument for her actually beating Naomi with a hammer because she was the one with all the rage. Chuck knew Naomi, but they didn't exactly have a relationship of any sort. It was just kind of a, a passing relationship. I was also wondering why Chuck didn't just use the revolver that he had brought on Naomi, but it's thought that he was using the hammer to try to keep the neighbors from being alerted, and the revolver was basically a last resort. So Marlene was tried in juvenile court, being 16 at the time, and was charged with violation of Section 602 of the California State Welfare and Institutions Code, and this states that she, quote, did encourage, instigate, aid, abet, and act as an accomplice in the homicides of her parents, end quote. While announcing his decision, Judge Charles R. Best stated, The uncontroverted evidence regarding the father is that Chuck Riley killed him. As to who actually did in the mother, we will never know. Marlene was sentenced to a term of four to six years confinement at the California Youth Authority at Ventura, also known as the Ventura School, 
she was to be released by her 21st birthday unless the youth authority determined that she had not been rehabilitated, in which case they could keep her up until the age of 23. She began her sentence at the Ventura School and was later allowed to serve part of her sentence while living outside of the school. And a few weeks before she's due to be paroled, she escapes and flees to New York, where she begins working in a brothel as a sex worker. It was here that police caught up to her in 1979. She's returned to California to finish her sentence and was released in 1980 at the age of 21. From here, Marlene continued her life of crime after moving into the Los Angeles area. She changed her name multiple times and was arrested at least seven different times for over the next decade for forgery and drug-related charges, serving two one-year terms in jail. In 1986, she was one of the 14 people arrested in L.A. for allegedly operating a large counterfeiting and forgery ring, and the police actually think that she was the ringleader behind this. She was, after that, convicted and sentenced to five years in prison. She served additional prison terms in California after a 1992 conviction for making a false financial statement and a 1995 conviction for possessing a forged driver's license. A 1992 LA Times article called her the Queen of the Trashers, this was due to her alleged skills at committing forgery and fraud and creating false identities based on documents such as, you know, voided checks that people had thrown in the garbage. Police said that, quote, they had barely come across a street-level forger believed to be as prolific or as skilled as Olive, end quote. In 2003, in Kern Cali, California, she pleaded guilty to passing a fictitious check in Bakersfield and was sentenced to seven years in prison. In December of 1976, the same year that Chuck was sentenced to death, the California State Supreme Court ruled that the California Death Penalty Statute, which then required a mandatory death penalty for certain categories of murder, was unconstitutional in the view of the U.S. Supreme Court's recent rulings in Gregg v. Georgia, as well as other cases. As a result of this, California prisoners sentenced to death under the unconstitutional statute, which included Chuck, could not be executed. Chuck's sentence changed from death to two concurrent life sentences with the possibility of parole after seven years. While in prison, Chuck lost weight, he received his high school diploma, and even earned the equivalent of a college degree. After becoming eligible, uh, Chuck applied for parole about a dozen times, and he was declined each time. In 2011, Chuck, now at the age 56 and suffering from physical disabilities, appealed his most recent denial on the grounds that there was no evidence that he continued to be a danger to the community, that the parole board did not consider his age, and that his sentence had been unconstitutionally excessive. Chuck won a new court-ordered parole hearing at which the parole board found him suitable for release and granted him parole. However, on February 6, 2015, the parole board's decision was reversed by California Governor Jerry Brown. He explained, quote, Although Riley professes to accept some responsibility, he continues to downplay his role in this crime, and until Mr. Riley is able to come to terms with his role in the horrendous double murder, I do not believe he will be able to avoid violent behavior if released, end quote. 
Chuck then appealed the governor's reversal of the parole board's decision, and on December 3rd, 2015, the California Court of Appeal for the 1st District vacated the governor's reversal and reinstated Chuck's parole. They stated, quote, We cannot affirm the governor's decision because of the premise of his conclusion, that Riley has failed to come to terms with his role in the double murder, is unsupported by any evidence. There being no evidence in the record that Riley continues to downplay his role in the crime, the governor's decision cannot stand, end quote. Following the court's directive, the parole board's 2015 annual report, released in January of 2016, showed Chuck as having been deemed suitable for release and granted parole in December 8, 2015. Marlene saw Chuck once after they were arrested for the murders, and this is when she visited him in prison in 1981. It's then that Chuck said, I'll never see her again. And he was right. And that's the story of the barbecue murders. I tried to kind of see what they were up to now, and I couldn't really find much. I think Marlene has changed her name enough times that she's kind of hard to track down now, and I couldn't really find much on Chuck. I do have one other much shorter barbecue-related murder to tell you about. This one comes from Norway on June 25th, 2014, where Helge Ulf Ergens, 61 years old, was found dead at his home. This is after his wife, Ruby Rosa, age 31, called the police. She says that she woke up in a chair that night, and when she went into their bedroom, her husband was dead. Police initially thought this was from natural causes. He was a bit older, he was on the bigger side, and they thought maybe his heart had just given out. But his daughters didn't agree with this and called the local precinct multiple times to try to get them to investigate further. The daughters aren't so convinced that Ruby Rosa didn't have something to do with it. One of the daughters, Regina Urgens, 23, told the police that she had found a disposable grill in the garage that had been used but nothing had actually been barbecued on it. The police didn't think that this was important to the case, and they just didn't really want anything to do with it. In February of 2015, after returning from a two-month-long trip to the Philippines, Rubirosa was arrested and charged with premeditated murder. She ended up owning up to the murder, saying that her husband treated her very badly over many years, and the night of the murder, the abuse had peaked, and she, quote, asphyxiated him on impulse. She had snuck in a smoldering portable barbecue grill to the room while her husband slept, poisoning him with carbon monoxide. Her defense attorney says that the two had an argument that night and her client acted in a state of anger, but that's not really what her internet search history suggests. In the three weeks running up to the murder in June, Ruby Rosa carried out more than 250 internet searches related to effective methods of killing someone. Those searches included, how do you poison someone without getting caught? Best poison to use to kill someone and not get caught. And can rat poison kill humans? So it's searches like this that didn't really do her any favors. And the daughters, of course, say that there wasn't any evidence to them that their dad was abusive to her. And I tried looking for sentencing on this one, and I couldn't really find much past the year of 2016. So I, I'm pretty sure she was convicted on those charges of premeditated murder, but I couldn't find out for sure. 
but I thought this case was pretty interesting and weird, and so I wanted to share it with you guys. And those are the stories for today. Again, if you want to see pictures relating to today's cases, head on over to the Instagram, Murder Alphabet Soup Pod, with underscores separating the words. And yeah, stop by, check out some photos, hit that follow button. Also, subscribe to this podcast if you like what you're hearing. want to say thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'll be back next week with a new one. It's heating up out there, so everybody get out, have some fun, don't murder anybody, and I'll see you guys next time.